We are in our series this Advent season called God With Us. I'm grateful that we're in this series. Uh, We need to be reminded uh, he is Emmanuel. We've been looking at the prophecies of the coming uh, coming, uh, Messiah through the, uh, through the, uh, the pen of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9, looking at Emmanuel and these, uh, these names that have been given to describe the Messiah. They are not uh, disconnected ideas or isolated uh, character traits of who the Messiah will be. Uh, there's a story being told here that uh, he is the wonderful counselor, that he is, he is the Jesus who plans in perfect wisdom. And uh, if you were here last week, we had the privilege of hearing from John Stumbo as he talked to us about uh, God's wisdom and the fact that he is awe-inspiring, that in, in the darkness there is a God who brings in the light and who is, at our, who is our counsel, someone we can turn to uh, when we need wisdom. And uh, uh, John uh, talked to us about wonderful counsel. He's the God who plans in perfect wisdom. Mighty God, which I'll talk to you here in a few moments about, he, he's the God who has the power uh, to execute and implement his wise plan. One way to look at this is, is if you have wisdom and no power, then you're just a dreamer. Uh, but if you have power and no wisdom, well, then you're oppressive or perhaps even abusive. But our Messiah is a, a wonderful counselor, one who plans in perfect wisdom, has the power uh, to implement or execute his wise plan as everlasting father. It will never, that wise plan will never come at the expense of people. Because he's the Prince of Peace, the result will always be wholeness. Even in the times where there's darkness and there's there's gloom, as we'll uh, we'll, we'll see today. Some of you know the name Chelsea Sullenberger, or maybe you remember the name Sully Sullenberger. Sully is his nickname. Uh, Sullenberger was a pilot with U.S. Airways. Uh, He piloted a flight 1549 that was taking off uh, from LaGuardia Airport uh, in in New York, headed to North Carolina. Uh, The plane took off, but shortly after takeoff, uh, the the flight hit a flock of birds. And uh, the the engines on that flight were, uh, well, they they lost all power. The engines uh, were toast. And uh, and Sullenberger had to make some very quick decisions. He made contact with a few airports that were close by to see if he could land there, but realizing that he had no thrust in the engines, uh, he had to bring this plane down, and he made the quick decision to ditch the plane in the Hudson River. Uh, he told the crew and the passengers to prepare to ditch, and if you, if you watched the news and you saw that footage from a security camera, you saw this, this, uh, this Airbus A320 skipping down uh, the Hudson River, much like a rock would skip across a river you know, when, you, when you throw a flat rock. It's just skipping along on the Hudson River and sort of skids to a, to a, a stop there on the water. The plane is floating, and, uh, and quickly the crew members begin evacuating that flight. Uh, and the pictures that are shown there are passengers uh, and crew members, 155 of them standing on the wings of this plane as it's floating in the Hudson River. Now, Sullenberger, in sort of an iconic, uh, you know, captain of the sea sort of way, uh, he, uh, he walks the aisle of that flight after it's been evacuated as it's floating on the water, not knowing how much time they have before the plane sinks. He walks the aisle of the plane not once but twice looking for any passengers or any crew members who have been injured who might be uh, out of view to make sure that he is the last person off the plane. Uh, In fact, that's what he was. He walks off the plane. He's the last person to walk off. And the news media tells stories about this 
capable pilot who has years of experience. He's an exceptional pilot. In fact, they even describe this whole landing uh, and describe Sullenberger as heroic. Uh, yet for the 155 passengers and crew members that were on the flight, he isn't simply a capable or exceptional pilot. He isn't simply heroic. He is their hero. He's their hero. Their life has been spared. Imagine that plane uh, as it's coming down, about ready to, to ditch in the Hudson River, the, the passengers on that flight. Imagine the emotions. Terror, fear, panic. They know full well, like you and I do, that when planes crash, typically there are more people who are dead than are alive. And as that plane comes down and lands safely, and not one life is lost, Sully Sullenberger is their hero. He isn't simply heroic. He's their hero. Sullenberger then decides quite wisely that this will be the last time he pilots a plane. Uh, he's going to go on a speaking tour, which is, uh, I think, a wise decision. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's done everything. And uh, he's, he's now going around, he's writing books and, and speaking. He is their hero. Now, when we come to the topic of mighty God, and, and we think about that name, we may be tempted to come to the conclusion that the name mighty God means all-powerful, or it means that God uh, can't be, cannot be outthought, cannot be outdone. There is no problem that he, he cannot solve. He's the God of the impossible. All those things are true. They are very true, but they don't capture the full meaning of this name, Mighty God. In the Hebrew, the word Mighty God is El Gibor. El is the Hebrew name for God. So when we say Emmanuel, those last two letters, El, that's, that's the Hebrew for God. El Gibor means the hero God. He's the hero God. He's the God who saves. He is the God who loves to rescue. He's the Mighty God. And he doesn't simply save 155. There are a multitude of people who look to Jesus and say, he is my hero because he's my hero, God, because of what the Messiah accomplished for us. And we're going to look of how Isaiah prophesies of this coming joy on this work of the Messiah. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read some verses here in a moment. Uh, and, and then I want to just remind us of the historical context for what's happening here because there is a story that this prophecy is being given in. Uh, it, it's very relevant. And uh, he, here's what's going on. We threw this map on the screen a couple weeks ago. We've got a superpower named Assyria um, that is, today is modern-day Iran and Iraq. And that superpower wants to conquer another superpower named Egypt. But in order to conquer Egypt, they're going to have to go through some countries along the way. Assyria is going to go through Syria and conquer it. Israel and Judah, which that's, that's the, the, the Israel as it's been separated by civil war. Israel's the northern kingdom. Judah's the southern kingdom. And Assyria, to get to Egypt, is going to conquer Syria, Israel, uh, and, and make an attempt to conquer Judah. Syria and Israel realize this is happening, so they form an alliance and they send an invitation to Judah to join this confederacy, this confederacy or this alliance. Judah declines on the alliance and pulls a fast one on Syria and Israel. They backdoor those two countries and make a, uh, a, an alliance with Assyria, which angers 
Israel and Syria. And so what they are going to do is they are going to attack little Judah. And, uh, and so that's the pressure that King Ahaz is under. Remember Star Wars Episode Four? Uh, you know, there, there's, there's Han Solo, there's Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Chewbacca, and they're shooting at the stormtroopers. They're on this galactic starship, uh, star, this, this ship. And, uh, and, and in order to, to evade these coming stormtroopers, they decide, I don't know whose idea it was, they decide to jump down this garbage chute. One by one, they're jumping down this garbage chute, which lands them where? In the garbage, right? I don't know who thought about that. It was a great idea, but that's where they end up. So they're in this garbage dump, and it's not just a garbage dump. It's a galactic trash compactor. There's water in it. It's up to the knees. It's full of you know, used you know, electronic devices, and there's like this serpent that's swimming in it that's going to take down Luke a couple times. That's the least of their worries. Their biggest problem is that the walls are starting to move in and to compact the trash and them with the trash. So Chewbacca is trying to hold back the wall, and he cannot do it. Uh, Skywalker is holding up a, a, a metal or a metal piece of a piece of metal, and he's trying to jam the the walls from coming in, but that doesn't work. And they're being squeezed, and they're getting in the in the walls are getting tighter. And Luke is screaming into his communication device because he's got two friends on the outside, R two D two and C three PO, and he's trying to get them to shut down the trash compactor. And at the very last moment, as, the, as they're about to get crushed in this cosmic trash compactor, uh, they, they, the, the, the trash compactor is disabled. And they breathe a, a sigh of relief. That's just like Isaiah chapter 9. It's just like it. Because, because the walls are, are coming in. Syria and Israel are attacking, and they're going to crush little Judah. They're outnumbered. They're outmanned, and they're sending up their, their, their cries for help. Some of you are there. Some of you are there this morning. Life is putting the squeeze on you, and you're wondering how you're going to pay those bills, how that relationship is going to be healed, how you're going to overcome the grief, what this diagnosis means. You, you, you're there. You feel it. And just like King Ahaz, you feel the fear, you sense the panic, you're worried, you're anxious, and it's into this context that Isaiah says, Emmanuel, God is with us, wonderful counselor, mighty God, you have a God who is a hero God, and he loves to rescue so let's pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, I'll read it, and if you'd follow along, that would be uh, terrific. And uh, in the end of chapter 8, we got all kinds of darkness and gloom. And what you're going to hear is that the darkness will be dispelled by light. The gloom will be dispelled by joy. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. Stop right there. You will enlarge the nation. The squeeze is being put on Ahaz and Judah. And it's, it, they're being crushed. It feels like they're going to be overcome. 
And what God says through Isaiah is, guess what? You're gonna be enlarged. We're gonna, there's gonna be this enlargement uh, that happens to the nation of Israel, and there's gonna be an enlargement of joy. The result of it will cause the people to rejoice. And what Isaiah is going to do is give a couple pictures of the kind of joy that they are going to experience in the future. Right now, they're in the squeeze. But there is a day coming when the nation will rejoice. There will be enlargement of joy. You ever seen kids right before a pinata is about to be busted open? My daughter, uh, Bethany, was married in September. And uh, one of the things that she wanted at her wedding was a pinata because she wanted something for the kids. And so as they're waiting for the bridal party to come back in, they're, they're around the dance floor, all these kids, a pinata's being held, and kids are, are busting away at it, and, and that thing is about ready to break open, and kids are all lined up around that dance floor. They're like, it looks like they're ready to start the 100-meter dash. I mean, they're ready to dive in there when that candy's on the ground. And, uh, and, and when that pinata breaks open and there's so much candy that falls out on the floor, I mean, it's mayhem. Kids are jumping on the floor and scooping up more candy than they can, than they can eat in one night or they should eat in one night. They, they, it's enlargement of joy. This is, this is a, a kid's dream. This, this is joy to, to an extent that they, they, they haven't seen before, perhaps. That's what Isaiah is going to describe in his two pictures. He gives two pictures to, to Judah to say, this is the kind of joy that you're going to experience. Here's the first one. It's, it's found at the end of verse 3. They will rejoice before you as a people, as people rejoice at the harvest. That's the first picture. It's a picture of farming and harvest. And farming is hard work, so I'm told. I don't know, but it's hard work. And when you are farming, you take something very small, a seed, you put it in the ground, and in the ground, the miracle of germination takes place, and out of the ground comes a vine, a plant, a bush, and over time, fruit is hanging, or vegetables are hanging on a bush, and, and there's harvest, and there's joy at harvest time. You put in all this hard work, and from something very small, there's enlargement. And in the Old Testament days, it was festival-like joy. This was community celebration because it was harvest time. The closest thing we've got to it is Thanksgiving. And we didn't work too hard for that turkey. Well, we did, but you know, we didn't work the turkey farm. But that's the kind of joy. It's like a farmer at harvest time. It's like a community harvest time that there's this rejoicing. The second picture we get, uh, again in verse 3, then it goes into verses 4 and 5. The, the, the rejoicing is like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. Some of you know that story, of the story of Gideon and his 300 that, that conquered Mid the Midianites, uh, uh, an army that could not be numbered. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Farming is hard work. Battle is hard work. And in farming, you have enlargement. You have a seed that it, that it produces fruit. That it causes festival, harvest joy. The second picture Isaiah gives us is the kind of, uh, the kind of joy that comes from victory. Battle is hard work, and when you win, there is enlargement. There's plunder, there's spoils, perhaps even enlargement of, of territory or land. 
And this, Isaiah is trying to give the people, uh, the, the people of God a picture of the kind of joy that lies ahead of them. Because right now, they're in the squeeze. They're feeling the pressure. And if you remember, really the, the whole center of the book of Isaiah is found in chapter 7, verse 9, the second half of it. If you do not stand in faith, you will not stand at all. And it is hard when the walls are moving in to keep faith. But what Isaiah is saying is, look, stay the course. Because there is a day coming when you are going to rejoice. It's going to be festival-like joy. It's going to be freedom-like joy. It's going to be joy like at harvest, joy like at victory in a battle. And you will be astonished at the joy. How? What's the plan? What's the wise plan, wonderful counselor? How, how are you going to rescue us, mighty hero God? How is this going to happen? Well, Isaiah continues with the story in verse, uh, verse 6. Here's how. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. There is coming a day, church, when there will not be a tear. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more school shootings. There will be no more murders. There will be no more robberies. There will be no more death. There will be no more disappointment. There will be no more discouragement because the Messiah has established his kingdom. And he is coming. And Isaiah, hundreds of, hundreds of years before, uh, before a baby was born in Bethlehem, Isaiah says, your joy will be enlarged and here's God's wise plan that he has the power to implement as mighty God. It's a baby. A baby born in the vulnerability of a manger. A baby who will not save just 155 lives. A child who will save the lives of multitudes as they put their faith in him. Think about it for a moment. If you are here today and you are not of Jewish descent, you are part of the enlargement. You're, you're the joy that Isaiah was prophesying about. I was seven years old. It was 1971 in South China when I got on both of my knees next to my bunk bed. I do not know why I remember, remember this, but I, I do. Some, some of you remember the day you gave your life to Christ. Some of you, you don't. You just knew you began following Christ. I remember the moment when I got on my knees with my mom and became part of the enlargement. I gave my life to Christ. And that is what Isaiah, that's our story. That's going from you know, 800 B.C. to 30 A.D. to birth of, the, birth of the Christ to 2012. We all have our stories. We are part of the enlargement. And yes, even when the walls are coming in, like they are for Ahaz and Judah, and it feels like we're going to be crushed and the life is being squeezed out of us, what God is saying to us is, Emmanuel, I'm here. I know this doesn't sound like a wise plan, but as your hero God, I love to rescue. Now, let me just wrap up this message and try and land it like a plane as well as Sullenberger did, which I cannot guarantee. 
Let me just ask a couple questions. The first one is this. In a, in a passage that has to do about joy, about darkness being dispelled by light, about gloom being dispelled by joy, where is your joy? Where is your joy this Advent season? What is it centered in? What is it placed in? I believe Eugene Peterson reminds us well in one of his books of the illusion of, of where we chase and try and get our joy. Peterson puts it this way. He says, all the things we look to for joy do not satisfy us at all. Joy is the product of abundance to overflow in vitality. We try to get it in entertainment. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own lives. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives. The effects of this are extremely temporary. A few minutes, a few hours, a few days at most. When we do not have money, the joy trickles away. The enormous entertainment industry in our land is a sign of our depletion of joy in our culture. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. But there is something we can do. We can decide to center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not in our egos that greedily grab. Enjoyment is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. You hear what Peterson is saying? So many of us, and even as Christ followers, are living, are living off the vitality of others. When the invitation of the Messiah is, center yourself in me, plunge your life into mine, into my work, and that's where you will find true satisfaction. Joy will be enlarged. Where is your joy this morning? Is your joy centered in Christ, the Messiah, your mighty God, or are you trying to buy it or purchase it? Second question we can ask ourselves is, are we living under the shadow of Isaiah? Here's what I mean by that. Jesus, uh, Jesus did the majority of his ministry in this area called Galilee, which Isaiah talks about in, in, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. The reason he says it's going to be humbled is because that's the first territory that will fall when Assyria attacks. Syria and Israel will never get to attack Judah because Assyria is on the move. And Zebulun and Naphtali are part of Israel, the northern kingdom, and it will be humbled. That's the first part of the land that will fall. But there will be a time when uh, Galilee will be honored. That's Jesus' ministry. And by the way, Jesus lived under the shadow of Isaiah, knowing that he would live out his ministry so that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the enlargement. That's most of us in the room. And Jesus knew this. Listen to Matthew chapter 4. Leaving Nazareth, he went, out, went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill was, what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The enlargement is still happening. Jesus knew that the kingdom of heaven was here, it was expanding, and this kingdom is still expanding. And let me ask you, are you living under the shadow of Isaiah? Are you living with this idea of plunging yourself into God, into God's work, which means declaring the, the great news that a child is born? 
and that there is true satisfying joy that's available only in this one who is called Emmanuel. He is our Christ. He is our wonderful counselor. He is wise. His wisdom makes women and men and boys and girls marvel. And he is the mighty God. He is the hero God who has the power to implement his wise plan. So you may be here today feeling the pinch of your own circumstances. And let me challenge you to keep your joy in the Christ who works out his wise plan in your life. And let me encourage you to keep the faith because if we do not stand by faith, we will not stand at all. He is Emmanuel and he is with us.